Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Peel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I am Jim. And as far as you know, we're both wearing pants. Why aren't you wearing any pants? Because I don't have to. <laughs> That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Correct, sir. It has been a heck of a week, man. It has just been a busy, busy week. How you doing, Jim? It really has. Yeah, I'm good. And uh, hoping to make it to the weekend was, um, you know, it, it was a, a pretty big motivator for, for this week because as you and I record this, uh, we're doing a little earlier than usual, um, yep. at least in terms of the hour of the day, because we both got something to do tonight. Both of us are heading out with our respective bands, and we are hitting the stage to entertain some folks with some live music this evening. Rocking and fucking rolling and fucking rocking and fucking rolling and fucking It's true. It's absolutely true. I got a gig tonight uh, a little closer to home than last time. Uh, but this gig sprung directly out of another gig that uh, we played uh, a week ago, so that's good. Uh, some of the other bands we're playing with might be just a touch questionable as far as their standing in the community, but uh, we won't get into that. That's a bit of a long time. Mm. But uh, yeah. yeah, I'm looking we'll forward to dusting off some music and uh, shaking the cobwebs out a little bit today. Yeah, same. This is our first gig back after uh, the paternity leave of one of our guitarists whose uh, wife had a baby in mid-July, and uh, he kind of asked us to hold off on booking any more shows till maybe September or so, so this is our first show back in a couple of months, and we've been looking forward to it. Got some folks coming that we know for sure are going to be there, so, uh, you know, the venue's really interesting. It's at this um, bar, restaurant, and arcade, actually. Uh, Very nice. They have an upstairs arcade area with like a kind of a Dave and Buster style gaming floor that's really fun. So yeah, it should be a good time. We've been looking forward to this one. That was really what was cool about this gig we played last weekend. At the, It was a place called the Vessel Tap House in Linwood, Washington, which is about a half hour north of Seattle. So a bit of a drive for me. But uh, it's this pirate themed bar. You are without doubt the worst pirate I've ever heard of. But you have heard of me. And so Yarr. you walk, it's like the one half of it's like this giant open warehouse. It's got like pirate decor everywhere, a big, huge stage, and like skeletons and cannons and shit like that all over the wall. And they brew their own beer and all that shit, which was really cool. And then you walk uh, through a doorway and it becomes a small arcade pinball and, and, and pool tables and some arcade cabinets. And so, a really cool little comfy space where I would be very, very much at home. And then you walk through there. And then there's the, the main bar, which is just like a regular neighborhood type bar thing. And then you walk through another door, and there's another like stage area, another uh, smaller stage with a, a seating area and everything, or a standing area, whatever you want to do. But uh, So we played the big stage last weekend, and then they're bringing us back at the end of September, the 24th, to play in the smaller uh, stage with a bunch of other metal bands, so... Uh, apparently they liked us well enough to bring us back. So, well, that's always good. Whenever you have a gig that leads to another gig, it's it's always a nice outcome. I mean, you expect to maybe walk out with a little bit of pocket money and maybe have entertained some people and you get your yayas out up on stage making some music. But when it snowballs into another engagement, that's that's always uh, that's how you know you really did a great job if they like you well enough to bring you back. Well, the competition. I mean, I don't want to besmirch other musicians. Uh, uh, 
good names or whatever, but the competition wasn't stiff for about half of these acts. And I showed you a video clip of this because the band, or the band, I say that with extreme quote marks before it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and we're not going to name names because, I mean, I don't know a thing about them, so I don't want to cast aspersions other than the aspersions that I'm about to cast. But, yeah. uh, uh, I looked up at the stage, and, and we're all getting prepared because this is the band that goes on before us, and so they're, they're setting up like uh, what looks like a computer, and like looks like DJ turntable. So I'm like, okay, it's not the first time we've played a mixed bill, so you know what's whatever. Uh, we sure, certainly want to play like a pure metal show, but you know if we had to mix ourselves sure. in with a little bit of something, something, you know, whatever. Uh, and so there's this guy, and you know, with the headphones on, the big studio cans on, and sweatbands and like he running jogging outfit and he's like fucking he looked like he had taken all of walter white's methamphetamines i'm getting those pricks out of that house oh your first attempt being such a wild success you may know this whole pi sit in the car business but i know meth heads <laughs> and uh <clears throat> very energetic and then to his right stage left was a guy in a fedora sitting in a chair with drumsticks in his hands. I'm like, great, they're going to bring out like an electric kit or something. No. Mm -hmm. this, this cat was air drumming. And I thought it was a fluke at first, but then he air drummed the entire set. Now, when I say air drummed, if he had drums in front of him, he would have hit every note perfectly. He was spot on, very accurate, which makes me believe something. Did he forget his drums? Uh, did something happen? The van break down? He couldn't get him to the gig? I don't know. Well, was it one of those things where, and I've seen this before too, they actually had uh, this thing that came out probably 10 years ago, and I looked into picking it up, but I just couldn't justify the expense. Um, it was a uh, <clears throat> kind of a motion cap virtual drumming thing, where you wore little things on your shoes, and your sticks had little, almost like the tennis balls, like if somebody's on a mocap stage doing, and, and then you have a camera in front of you, and it picks you up on a virtual drum set in midair. I wish it was something that cool, but no, standard sticks, just sitting there air drumming, and so I'm look and I'm looking at this and I'm incredible. I, I could be playing drums if there were drums here. Right, right, and uh, he's just as energetic as this other dude. And I sent you video of it because I was just flabbergasted by this whole thing. Yeah, and and I'm sitting there and I look at, at James, my guitar player. He walks into the room after going to the bar, and I'm like, I give him the 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 fingers to the eyes and then the pointing <laughs> thing. I'm like. Look what are we looking at, at here, bro? This. Look at this. And his jaw drops, and I'm like, yeah. What? And then the the other shoe dropped because it finally caught on. The dude wasn't singing either. He was lip syncing. So, so they had a pre-recorded <laughs> set, and they just showed up and mimed along to their own music? Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's a Milli Vanilli sort of situation happening up there. Yeah. And I was just like I was floored with the air drumming, but once it finally hit me, because I saw one of those moves where you know he didn't pull the microphone quite up to his face in time to catch the vocals. And when, when I kind saw that, that, uh, that classic Ashley Simpson moment, right. And so it was like the, the, the THX, uh, the audience is now deaf audio setting in, in the back of my head, like, 
Everything was just in stark focus all of a sudden. I'm like, oh, shit. Because I've never, in the history of being a performer, or even before, ever seen anything like that. And and part of me was like just super like, fuck, good on you. Do what you got to do, man. Get up there and make yeah. yourself. But the other part of me, the small part in the back of my brain, it was like, you know... I sat here learning these this songs, writing these songs, playing these songs, perfecting these songs, and these guys get up, and they're pantomiming, and they've got a paying gig. They had people there to see them. Mm. They brought their own people. I mean, I guess there's kind of... I don't want to say... They sold a, tickets. A... <laughs> I don't want to say there's like a tradition of that happening in current popular music, but... There is at least precedent set for it. Like, I mean, I don't know. I was just musing the other night because uh, today, as we record this, is Saturday. Thursday night, I had tickets. Um, actually, I took my mom uh, to go and see Mark Martell and uh, his his current oh, Queen tribute act. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. Shout um, out to Joni. He's... Hi, Joni. Yeah. It was such a great show. And Mark is so tremendous. And he's got... Freddie's uh, vocals down, and he's he's really he, he approximates the stage presence. I mean, the guy is an absolute showman, and the band was tremendous. I'll have to send you some video clips. They were just great. But it occurs to me that the state of modern music, as we talked about a couple episodes ago, the live music experience, is changing somewhat, because I, in the last couple of months, well, the last year or so, I have seen an awful lot of tribute bands. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen Yacht Rock Review a couple of times. I've seen Leonid and Friends, the uh, Russian Chicago cover band that's so tremendous. Those guys are great. Yeah, and I just went and saw Mark Martel with his Queen tribute band last night, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm in a tribute band, too. I, I cover, you know, the band I'm in now just strictly does covers. But had you told me, you know, 10 or 15 years ago that, I, that, that some of the biggest touring acts on the road would be tribute bands, hell, I have a friend uh, also named Kevin, and he's, uh, I've uh, known him in more for years and years. Yeah, eh, yeah, you really are. Um, like a virus. But I've known this guy for a long, long time, and my he used to be in a band called Sister Moon in Milwaukee that my old band used to play with. Uh, we played with him a couple of times. Okay. And we were all young and in our 20s, and he and I were working at uh, a Mars music store back when those still existed. And we just got to know each other. And then he took his musical career a lot more seriously than I did. I just kind of always knocked around in different bands. But he um, became a producer, uh, he produced some recordings that were nominated for Grammys. He's worked with pretty much everybody. Um, but he also, uh, about four years ago, formed a yacht rock band called the Docksiders. And uh, they play all the classic smooth AM gold hits from like the late 70s, early 80s, all the stuff, you know, the Steely Dan, the Doobie Brothers, uh, Olivia Newton-John, all that great yacht rock stuff, the same stuff that Yacht Rock Review plays, or at least the same genre, if not the same songs. And right. they just, this week, started a residency at the Rio in Vegas. They're the first yacht rock bands to have a residency in Vegas. And I'm thinking, Sweet. you know, between between seeing tribute bands touring on a scale of that, that only original, quote-unquote original bands, would have been able to achieve, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and then seeing, like, these, these essentially DJs 
uh, you know, especially when I lived in Vegas, you would see that every DJ, Calvin Harris, Tiesto, uh, Dead Mouse had a, a, um, a Steve Aoki, they all had residences for a little while at different casinos and showrooms, and you can go and see them, and I just thought, you know, I, I used to kind of turn up my nose in my sort of younger, less enlightened years at, well... You know, you're just, you're not really a musician, are you? You're just kind you're of just playing aping records. aping someone else's style. Yeah. There's artistry involved if you're doing, like, smooth mixes or if you're trying to, like, do something creative and artistic with the music you're playing. But then I read an article, I want to say maybe five or six years ago, that um, Dead Mouse uh, was in Rolling Stone or something, and somebody had accused him. They, they, some noob who was not necessarily a fan of his, not really steeped in, like, EDM or house music or techno or anything, went to go see a live Dead Mouse performance, and they said, yeah, he was up there, you know, pretending to... He's on a little, like, a, an altar almost above the crowd, and he's got lights, and he's twisting knobs and hitting buttons and shit, but he's also got a, a laptop. He's just got a, a MacBook sitting next to him. And I noticed he touched the MacBook at the beginning of the set, and then he stopped it at the end of the set. And I'm convinced that all the knob twisting and all the hand waving and all the pretend scratching were just that. They were miming. They were they were for the performance. They were for a show. And Dead Mouse came back and said, yeah, I mean, we all just push play. That was easy. I mean, you put your set together at home. You're in your studio. You you mix everything together so there's no fuck-ups live. And then you go out there and you hit play on your, your, your sound file. And then you're up there, you know, twisting knobs and waving your arms in the air. And it doesn't have any effect on what you're doing because everything's pre-recorded. And I thought, you know... There, there is a certain artistry to being a live DJ. If you're mixing, if you're scratching, if you're doing crossfades, if you're doing all that, there is an artistry to that. It's, I think, analogous to photography as opposed to painting, if you're talking about, like, you know, it's, it's more technological than it is creative, but I still give them credit for having a certain amount of facility with it. But then you got dudes like Deadmau5 who are like, yeah, I get paid. I show up and I'm, I'm DJing, quote-unquote, but I'm just hitting, playing a sound file and it plays for an hour and a half, two hours, and I'm up there just... You know, I mean, I put it together, so I'm up there as a visual representation of what it is you're hearing, but I'm not creating anything live. Hmm. And it just, you know, to, to see that people like that are sort of on the on the same level, I'm okay. Not that anybody who's a, a live music fan would necessarily consider it to be an analogous experience. But it just strikes me as like, okay, the last show for the season for the concert venue that I've been bartending at weekends is coming up next weekend as we record this. And it's for this guy named Grizz. Now, I didn't know who he was. I'd never heard of him. And I'm thinking, okay, there's some pretty decent-sized shows on the schedule of this venue this year. We've got, you know, I worked the Jimmy Buffett show. I worked the Rage Against the Machine show. I worked the Dave Matthews show. Who the fuck is this guy? Fish was there. And now he gets this guy I've never heard of. Not that I'm, like, that old. I've never heard of this guy. But, like, you know, you think if somebody's big enough to be playing two dates at this giant outdoor amphitheater on a summer concert tour, there's somebody who you've, you maybe is, is it, if not a household name, at least somebody you've heard of. But right. I've not heard of him. Uh, so I was talking to Steph about it, and Steph, uh, my lady, is actually, she's super into synthwave and EDM and a lot of other different kinds of, of, uh, of music that I not necessarily have a history with. And she said, oh yeah, he, he's a DJ, but he does have people that come out with him that actually do create parts of the music, and Grizz himself apparently is a pretty top-notch saxophone player. So he does kind of a... Uh, almost a jazz EDM mixture, like a fusion music thing, where he does certain things that are recorded that are backing tracks and other things that are uh, that are performed actually live. So that should huh. be interesting. I don't, it takes all kinds. You know, I'm not going to sit here like you said. I'm not going to besmirch another musician, anybody who's out there bringing music to people in whatever form. 
entertaining people. They, they deserve to be able to do that, and people should enjoy whatever they enjoy. I just, you know, my musician heart, like you said, I, I learn these songs. I learn how to sing them. I learn how to play the drums. I learn how to play guitar when that's necessary. And to just think that somebody can go out there and just like Dead Mouse, I push play on a file on my MacBook, and then I sit back and wave my hands in the air, and they pay me hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars for this. I mean, I don't know. It's just, this. I'm not going to shit on it. I'm just going to yeah. say I don't understand a lot of it. And maybe that makes me old. Maybe that makes me an old, hey, get off my lawn. When I was a boy, they used to play real instruments. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. I understand there's all kinds of different music, and people should like what they like. It's just not something that's for me, so I kind of look at it a little bit askance sometimes. Yeah, it, I mean, like you said, it takes all types. I'm, I'm really, I mean, like I said, I, I, I don't wish him any ill will. I was just really confused, and so, yeah, you know, it was just, it was a unique experience. But, uh, and then today, uh, to flip the topic over here, uh, I've talked to you a bit about how much I love going to like pawn shops and game stores and things like that, and finding yeah, yeah, handheld video game systems particularly that I like to collect. Uh, lately, I've been on a kick with the Nintendo 3DS, uh, all the different various iterations of the 3DS and 2DS system. And uh, I went into a pawn shop in Auburn, Washington, last week, um, as we record this, and uh, they had uh, an original uh, 3DS XL. Uh, not the new 3DS XL, the original 3DS XL. There's a difference, believe me. Um, but they had, uh, and, and the value on these 3DSs has just been skyrocketing. And it's just weird how much value they have in these things right now. And so they have one marked at $100. And it's in really good shape. And, uh, you know. And what do they usually go for in that kind of condition? Give or take about a buck fifty, hundred fifty. Yeah, okay. So, well, it's I not mean, too bad then. And so, I mean, I was looking at the Switch games there primarily. I bought a Switch game for Daniela. She's been wanting to play that Donkey Kong Switch game. She loves those. And yeah, I hear that's great. And so I picked that one up finally for her, and I picked up Mario Maker 2 for, for everyone else, and I've been playing that one. i got Nintendo Thumb right now because of that one. <laughs> some Nintendo of those Mar- strikes again. Some of those Mario Maker levels are just straight up their whole purpose is to be brutal brutal is putting it mildly i don't know i was going to say uh uh, sadistic but i mean that might be something (laughs) hard but but anyway i picked those two games up for a steal and i'm looking at this uh, 3ds and she's like oh i'll take it down to 80 out the door if you want it and i'm serious i'm going uh 80 i don't know i mean i don't need another one but if it's going to be 60 or 70 bucks off what it usually lists for in that sort of condition it's hard to pass up Right, and that was my thought process. And then they back in my head, I'm like, no, I've literally got one of these <laughs> in this color, uh, so I'm gonna pass for now. And so the entire weekend and then enti- this entire week, I was kicking myself like, man, I could have made a profit on that. I-, I turned my nose up at it, and so actually this Thursday, uh, my Friday at work, I ended up going back to Auburn to pick a crew up or drop a crew off, and. So on the way out, I swung by uh, that pawn shop again, and, and that chick is working again. And so I go in to look, and it's not there. Obviously, they sold it. Right. Uh, and these things don't sit on the shelf very long, these 3DSs. They, they bounce out real quick. And it's because they're, they're easily modifiable. I do the modifications myself as well. You can upgrade them with a memory card upgrade and some custom firmware, and they'll play everything. I mean... 
my my 3ds has eight thousand games on it right now something like that uh it's a lot of games you can play a lot of stuff and so i went back in there and i didn't see it and i was kind of disappointed but they had another 3ds in the case and i said hey can i look at that 3ds while i'm here since you don't have the other one sure yeah. okay and I noticed that the, the bezel around the inside of it is this very particular kind of blue. And I don't know how to phrase what color blue this is, but it's a very particular color of blue. And you're not going to be able to yeah. see it very well in the reflection. That's like a midnight blue, looks like. Right. Right. So it's a really, it's a distinctive blue. None of the other ones have that color. And so I knew exactly what I was looking at was the 3DS, the new 3DS XL Galaxy Edition, which is... Uh, a special edition that uh, I also I own one already of, and it's beautiful. It's one of my absolute favorites. It's one of the three that I display on my desk right now. But uh, I, I noticed it was that one. Now I, I'll tell you, I paid 170 for mine, the one that I have displayed on my desk, and that was a steal at current market value when I got it. I got it from a casual on uh, Facebook Marketplace who was just selling it to make money for a trip. Didn't know what she had, wasn't selling it to make a profit kind of thing. God bless her. We love people like that. She was a super yeah, yeah. awesome lady anyways. Uh, so I already have one in my collection. But I look at the sticker on this thing, and this thing's pristine. It's in great shape. A little bit dirty on the, on the touch screen, but that's easily cleanable, and it was. Sure. Um, they had 150 on it, which is a steal for this one. You paid 170 for the other one, right? I paid 170 for my other one, so 150 for this one. It's got the stylus, everything else. It's in fantastic shape. Good deal. But you're at a pawn shop. You always ask. I had a friend right. back when I was 20. His name was Werner Balkarsel, and the, one of the biggest key pieces of advice that Werner gave me was, if you don't ask, you don't get. Right. So when you're pawn shopping or you're retro gaming shopping, you got to ask the question. And the question obviously is... And she hems and haws about it uh, because it's only been on the floor like three or four days. And, and if she works in the pawn shop business, she knows she can flip those things pretty fast. Right, and, but typically Cash America as a pawn shop doesn't really cut. They have a set list of prices on the tag. They're like, at this date it'll be this price, at this date it'll be this price, and so on and so forth. Um, but this woman was obviously already willing to work with me and make cut me like a 20% discount on the other one. So sure. it, was worth, it was worth the ask. And so I said, what's the lowest you could do on this? She said, I could cut you out, for, out the door for 132 um, and even then, I'm yeah, exactly. I'm like, ah, well, I already <laughs> got one of these, and hmm, tell that, her we already got one. I said, is that is that the best you can do? Can you move a little more? And she's like, all right, fine. A hundred and twenty-one dollars out the door after tax, but that is the bottom line. I'm like, all right, I'll take it. And so that's the fun half of the story. The great half of this story, other half of this story, is uh, I've put it, listed it in uh, my Facebook group that I'm a part of. It's a retro gaming uh, buy sell trade group, and uh, I listed it for its market value. And I'm meeting a guy after we podcast today to flip it. So within 
two days I've already flipped it and I've turned it for a hundred percent profit so I bought it for the 121 I'm selling it for 250 I wish there was anything I knew enough about besides drums, which are, you know, a pretty pretty huge upfront investment. I'm actually toying around with selling the drums that I have. Um, I have two drum sets right now. I've never in my life owned two drum kits at the same time before. But one of them is the, um, the Roland V-Drums TD-17 KVX, which is uh, the top of the line of the mid of the range for Roland. It's actually a really, really good set. I bought it in, I want to say, 2017 or 2018. So it's got a couple years old now, but the, the V drums they don't really uh, they don't really go out of style, uh, especially because this one is the first um, drum set that they put out as an electronic drum set that accepts uh, outside samples. You can load samples on an SD card and then just load them into the module and trigger whatever sound you want from from whatever the drums are. Um, so that's pretty cool. So that's the one I'd hang on to, the one that would break my heart to get rid of. And every time that I've sold the drum set, I've regretted it. Um, for a lot of reasons, but this is a kit that I've wanted for a long time. I had a Birch drum kit, and anybody who's a drummer, um, if you if you know, you know. Drum Birch drums, they're they're a specific kind of sound. Uh, most guys who gig live prefer maple drums because maple drums are very projective. They're very loud. They have a very sharp attack and a short decay. Um, the composition of the shells has a big effect on how they resonate and what sort of sound they kick out. Um, but I've always preferred birch drums because I'm not a loud drummer. I mean, I you know I play pretty loud, but I'm not I'm not Lars Ulrich. You know, I'm not one of these guys who I'm not I'm not um, uh, as it turns out Shane Hawkins, who we all saw pounding the absolute Holy shit. I want to talk about that here. Yeah, we'll circle back to that. But birch drums have a very uh, mellow sound. They have a softer attack, a longer decay. They're more resonant. If a uh, a maple tom tom goes do 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 do, a birch drum will go doom 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 doom. It's a very sustainy, warm, brown, EQ'd kind of sound. And one of my favorite drum sets that I've ever owned, I had a Tamastar Classic Birch that I played uh, the last couple of years I lived in Milwaukee and then for a couple of years in Minnesota. And then I sold that kit when I moved to LA because I needed to both fatten the wallet and lighten the load and couldn't take it with me. And so I got rid of it. A big regret. So I've always wanted a, a Birch drum set. Um, so I bought, uh, but Birch drum sets, they're kind of expensive. If you look at, you know, if you look them up on, uh, on, on Musician's Friend or Amazon, most Birch drum sets, they start at around $1,200, $1,300, and it can, you know, go up as much as you want to pay for them, five, 6000 for some of the top-of-the-line ones from some of these world-class manufacturers. Well, I found a Yamaha Stage Performance, uh, Stage Custom, uh, kit, uh, for about $700, brand new off the door, just a shell kit. No hardware, you know, no cymbals or anything, but... Uh, for a birch drum set, for a five-piece birch drum set with a matching birch snare, that's a, a dynamite price. And I got it from Musician's Friend, and then I went and, uh, locally and I bought a bunch of matching hardware for the Yamaha kit, and I bought a bunch of cymbals. And, and that was back when I was trying to get uh, the, the other band that I was trying to put together at the same time that, that Rust Bucket was coming together. I was going to be playing drums in another 90s cover band. And that band kind of fell apart for a lot of different reasons. Um, so I have this drum set, and it's a nice drum set, but I'm not playing drums right now. Right. Um, the band that I'm in, I'm in is a singer and a rhythm guitarist occasionally. Um, so it's just kind of sitting there gathering dust, and I'm out of practice, and if anybody even said, can you play drums with us right now, I would, need, I would still have the other one to play on. So as much as I know for a fact that I've regretted selling every drum set I've ever had, and I've been trying to get another Birch drum set uh, for probably 10, 15 years since I had to sell the last one, um... Yeah, I just, uh, I might have to get rid of it. Just because I'm not doing anything with it. I bought it hoping to start this other band, and I kind of, you know, 
<sighs> Still trying to get caught up in those credit card bills. So uh, I'm toying around with the idea of putting that on either Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace as well. Just trying to liquefy some assets a little bit. Because I'm not using it. It's just gathering dust. And it'd be a shame. It's a drum set I've wanted for years. I was so happy when I finally put it back together again. And felt like I got back what I had to lose when I moved. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, I, could, I could do it again. I could put it together again if I wanted to. And <sighs> down the road if I ever need to again, I'd just be in a better spot to be able to do it. Right, and and for me, it's just, I mean, like I said, it's just stuff that I collect anyway, so it's like, I'm always hunting, I'm always looking for it, but this yeah. is the first time I've actually done like a like a flip. And I watch a lot of those videos on Facebook, I like, I watch Retro Rick is a good one, I watch uh, Phoenix Resale is a good one, uh, they do a lot yeah. of video game purchases, the kind of stuff that I'm into, 90s and 90s nostalgia stuff, and and uh, so I watch them do the flipping all the time, but I've never actually successfully done it. And because I've always felt like it's kind of sleazy, you know. Well, but I mean, in this particular regard, I'm not charging like an exorbitant price for it. I'm charging what the market will bear on it. Right. Uh, and if but, somebody else is get rid of it for less than that, then it's kind of, especially you who knows so much about this particular, you know, you your uh, area of expertise and one of your biggest uh, fandoms and, and, and collections is the the Nintendo handheld. So you know about yep. these things. You know how to fix them up. If they have a couple scratches or a loose wire, you know how to uh, to to kind of gut them and put some new stuff on it. And you know what they're worth. And if somebody else can get rid of something, there's no shame in that. I mean, you know, people flip cars all the time. They flip houses all the time. If mm -hmm. I had more uh, <clears throat> ability to, uh, to to front money and not care when I got it back, I'd flip drum sets. It's just. If you know something inside and out, and, and somebody else is getting rid of it and don't know what it's worth, I mean, what's, it's not your responsibility to walk up to them and say, hey, you know, you're charging a lot less for this than you could. I happen to be an expert in this area, and I know it's worth two or three times that you're asking for it. I don't think there's any shame in that. You know, somebody's selling it. They, they set the price for what they thought was fair. And if you know you can sell it for more to somebody who knows more about it than they do, I don't, I, I don't see why you should beat yourself up about that. No, I'm, I'm actually pretty pleased with it. And... It's got me wanting to keep going back to this pawn shop because clearly this woman yeah. is able to work with me. So it's like I'm, I'm, she's definitely earned my custom by this point. So I mean, she's selling it for more than what she bought it for. You're selling it for more than what she bought it for. You're not doing anything worse than what they're doing. They just I have a know. building. So, I mean, and, and I had to fight that. You know how uh, Lord of the Rings, you got Gollum and you got Smeagol and how they fight with each other. <laughs> Their personalities yeah. clash. And so on the one hand, it's like, yeah, uh, post it on Facebook, uh, you know, get a profit on it. No matter what you sell it for, you're going to make a profit on it. Even if you list it underneath profit or market value, you'll still make a profit on it. Uh, sell it. Make some money on it. And then the other part of the Smeagol part of me underneath is like, but it's pretty. Keep it precious. It's beautiful. And then, oh, but you already have one of those. You don't need another one. Oh, it's no. shiny. Keep we, it. We don't care. Keep it. They're hard to find. And so I'm, I'm fighting that nature in my own head. Uh, well, that's I, speaking that uh, of Lord of the Rings, that segues us into another uh, thing we wanted to touch on this week, which yes. is uh, the Rings of Power series is out on Amazon, and um, it's getting a mixed response uh only because there are obviously we, we've how many times we've talked about toxic fandom of people who assume they own a thing just because they love a thing and they're only going to accept that thing in certain forms that they already have prepared themselves they're going to accept and so the toxic fandom of the the tolkien uh fandom folks 
are bitching endlessly that uh, that the showrunners, writers, creators, casting agents, whoever is, is behind the scenes of the, the Rings of Power series in Amazon, has had the audacity to cast actors of color in some oh. of these fantasy roles. How and holy dare shit. You. What is, you know, oh, well, we got black hobbits now? Oh, now Tolkien even has to be woke? I mean, Jesus Christ. And I, you know, I get so irritated about this. We've talked about this before. Whether it's casting an actress of color to play Batgirl, casting an actress of color to play Ariel in the live action Little Mermaid. People were pissed off about Idris Elba as Heimdall in the MCU because, oh, you know, they're, the, uh, Asgard is based on Norse mythology, and they were white, so uh, what's this guy? You know, shut the fuck up. Get over it. I mean, Tolkien, it's, it's come out in, in, in the geek press this week. Uh, somebody, and we, boy, do we love Neil Gaiman, first and foremost. Let's just say that. Neil love Gaiman, uh, yep, uh, creator uh, behind the Sandman comic books and uh, showrunner of the series on uh, an HBO. Or no, it's not. Is it an HBO? No, it's Netflix. And uh, the guy who is also behind American Gods. I mean, he's a... A neo-fantasy author of the highest order. If you're a fantasy reader absolutely. and you don't know who Neil Gaiman is, you're doing it wrong. So and he's Neil absolutely Gaiman, a though, scholar on, on uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, by the way. I yeah. They, didn't they yeah. know each other? I want to say they knew each other. Uh, I, I'm not really sure. Uh, you're probably right. I know Tolkien was uh, had to have been pretty old, but, uh, you know, I'm not really sure how the timeline works out on that. But right. Tolkien, um, first and foremost... Uh, the the particular hobbits, so they're not really hobbits. They're they're a forerunner of the hobbits. Harfoots. They're, they're precursor, Harfoots, and many of the actors and actresses who are playing the Harfoots in the Rings of Power series are performers of color, and mm-hmm. people are getting pissed off about that. Okay, first and foremost, if you can accept wizards and dragons and hobbits and elves, but you can't accept people of color in your fantasy universe. The problem is not the fantasy universe. You're a racist. You. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. But second. Um, people who are Tolkien scholars who actually know more than the casual fans who are getting pissed off about the fact that these Harfoots on the show are dark uh, and have darker skin. Um, Tolkien wrote them that way. Yeah. Um, somebody recently pinged uh, Neil Gaiman on Twitter um, uh, from the handle at Chart the Great, C H A R T the Great. And she said, well, let's ask Tolkien's best mate himself about his opinions on this. And Neil Gaiman's response was, Tolkien described the Harfoots as browner of skin than the other hobbits. So I think anyone grumbling is either racist or hasn't read their Tolkien. Your mileage may vary. And he's correct. He, I'm looking at this article on uh, relevantmagazine.com. And uh, the passage in question, um, Tolkien described the various types of hobbits. He wrote that the Harfoots were browner of skin, smaller and shorter, and they were beardless and bootless. So... Tolkien wrote into his books that there were hobbits that had duskier skin. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, we also had uh, notorious Twitter troll himself, uh, Elon Musk, uh, sending out tweets like, Oh, well, Tolkien would be rolling over in his grave and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, uh, we had a response from uh, Neil Gaiman. Um, and I quote, this is directly from Neil Gaiman himself. He says... Elon Musk doesn't come to me for advice on how to fail to buy Twitter, and I don't go to him for film, TV, or literature criticism. Bra- uh, stay bravo. in your fucking lane, Elon. Bravo. And that's just the thing. There is this huge backlash to uh, uh, this Rings of Power series, and your mileage may vary on whether you like it or not. I'm actually kind of enjoying it. Uh, we, we're big, huge fans of Lord of the Rings in this house. Uh, my wife especially. Huge fan. And so, uh, 
to the point where she wanted to watch it the day it dropped. Like, you know, we have to watch this yeah. now before the internet spoils it all, which it's I get. Instinct. Which I get. Uh, but, yeah, I, it's exactly like that meme, that meme you were quoting says. It's like, if you've got a problem with all of this, accepting all of this, what do you want to call it, representation in, in sci-fi fantasy, but you don't have a problem with, like, space wizards and evil overlords and, and, and fucking... You know, pirates and and all of this shit. Uh, then she Hulk is twerking with Megan the Stallion. Well, that's that. She would never. Okay, first of all, dance off, bro. She Hulk. If you're going to complain, dance about off, that. bro. I mean, but nobody's if you bitching loved about Star Lord did it. Yeah, exactly. Right. If you loved it when Deadpool breaks the fourth wall and this goofy shit. If you liked it when uh, uh, when when the Joker danced down the stairs. You just your problem is not with the goofy fourth wall breaking stuff. And especially if your problem is, is particularly with She-Hulk, you know nothing about the comics. And I've barely read any She-Hulk comics. I have read some, and even I, as a very casual fan of that particular, uh, you know, section of the MCU. I, I love the character, uh, but I just, you know, it's I don't have the budget to buy all the books, but I have read quite a few of them, and they're fantastic. And they are ostensibly more comedy books. Irreverent, you know? very and, uh, irreverent. She breaks the, uh, the fourth wall all the time and does goofy mm-hmm. stuff all the time, so... Trust me, I don't care how well you think you know a character, whether you're a Tolkien fanboy, whether you're bitching about She-Hulk, whatever it is. The people who the uh, the Marvel folks and the Tolkien folks have entrusted to interpret these characters for the screen, they know more than you do. And they actually <laughs> do have some sort of ownership over the character because they help to create it, they help to perpetuate it, they help to keep it alive through books and, and, and on-screen adaptations. They know more than you do. They have more of a right to decide what happens to that character than you do. And if you mm-hmm. don't like it, then don't fucking watch it. Agreed. Nobody's holding a gun to your head, you know? Nobody's saying, consume, you must consume. I mean, this is all voluntary, bro. Fandom yeah. is voluntary. If I don't like the new Star Wars stuff, I do. Uh, but if you don't yeah. like it, you don't watch it. If you don't like the yeah. new Marvel stuff... And I do. Don't watch it, you know? If you don't like a particular video game franchise after X series game, don't play it. It's not that friggin' difficult a science to master, you know? It ain't that serious, bro. Yeah. Spend your money elsewhere. Put your money where your mouth is. Literally, go somewhere that has the uh, catered fantasy du jour that you prefer. I mean, no skin off any of these creators' noses. Fucking seriously. The the last thing that we got to touch on before we get into the actual thrust of the episode... Uh, as it thrusts into your ear holes. Um, we we no. want to talk about, I mean, uh, something kind of shocking happened this week, and uh, people have pretty mixed feelings about it, but I know you and I, and even, uh, our, uh, you know, to a certain extent, our parents never knew a world without Queen Elizabeth II sitting on the throne in England. Um, and, true. of course, she just passed away a couple of days ago as we record this. Um, and it's strange. It's a weird, because I think a lot of people just kind of figured she had some kind of weird immortality. I mean, what was she, 98? <laughs> 96 something yeah she was an old uh, 90, 96 had, yeah 71 or 70 or 71 years in the throne and 70 I, years I think they just they, celebrated the yeah, jubilee recently that's right yeah a couple of months ago and uh she uh was on her feet welcoming the new prime minister two or three days before she passed away uh looking very hale and hearty and uh and an upbeat of spirit but um you know when it's your time to go it's your time to go so for the first time in our lifetime um, King Charles III will be the reigning monarch of England at 73 years old. Um, so that's it's strange, yeah. A switch. But what I find interesting about it is that uh, there have been a lot of mixed feelings. I have a lot of friends of different um, cultural identities, different races, different backgrounds, and 
especially folks of color, are levying a really valid criticism. I mean, people are saying, oh, God save the queen, the queen is dead, that's really sad and everything. And pretty much anybody that I know who is uh, Irish or Australian or a person of color, they've come out and they've said, well, it's really hard to mourn somebody uh, who was that engaged in colonialism. Yeah. I mean, to to be uh, the last real monarch that reigned over the 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 British Empire, so to speak, and when uh, she was during the beginning of her reign, um, there were a lot of African countries that were still, you know, colonial properties. Uh, Australia still is, Canada still is, uh, Northern Ireland. They've been fighting for decades about it. Um, so there are a lot of people who sort of uh, revered this woman for her her stature, for her uh, unshakable leadership, for her. Um, uh, just her, her poise and her elegance and her grace. And there are just as many people on the other side of the aisle who are saying, well, um, there, there are a lot of indigenous people and a lot of people of color all over the world who were subject to some incredibly harsh policies throughout her reign. And everybody's right. That's the thing. You can, you can both, yep. it, it, the, the cognitive dissonance of being able to revere somebody who was a uh, largely well thought of world leader, but also question some of their really poor decision making and how they ran their empire and governed things around the world. Uh, either passively or actively, subconsciously or consciously, what have you. Um, they're both valid reactions. And I can hold both of those things in my head at the same time as well. So, um, sad times for England for those who were uh, reverent of the, the monarchy, the, 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 the Windsor family, the throne, all that. But uh, also sympathy for folks of color from places like Jamaica or Kenya or India or any of these places that suffered under British reign uh, for, for many decades uh, and maybe even still are in some cases. Um, yeah, I mean, it's complicated. Like anything else that's that large scale and that impactful on a global setting, it's, uh, it's just complicated. So feel however you want to about it. Um, it's it's really valid either way. Yeah, your mileage may vary on that as well. So, I mean, like like you said, everyone's got a valid point, you know, whether or not you're into the monarchy or not. And, you know, <laughs> it strikes me weird all the Americans that are kind of boohooing it just because that's it's a fandom like anything else there are a lot of you people watch the crown yeah. they watch uh, the tutors they watch all of the it's it's a fascinating world of of uh in extreme propriety and etiquette and, and all of these other things and and to a large extent i mean as they've reminded us on the news several times in the last couple of days especially since the passing of the queen um the british monarchy is just today they're they're largely symbolic they're, they're figureheads. They're figureheads. Yeah. They, yeah, they don't have a. I mean, they, they have a whole lot of influence. They have a whole lot of power, and they have a whole lot of ability to do things on a very large global scale that uh, can either improve the world or that can make certain corners of it slightly more miserable. Whatever you want to do, but for the most part, uh, British uh, society and, and the UK is a. Um, it's parliamentary. It's a, it's a constitutional monarchy. They do vote for representatives. Uh, there is a prime minister who is appointed by whoever the head of state is. In that case, it's the queen or now the king. Uh, that is one of these ceremonial duties that they do have that is uh, pretty important for the way the government's run. But, I mean, largely, it's uh, it's just pageantry. It, it's a lot of figureheading, and it's a lot yeah. of old school, we've done it this way because we've always done it this way kind of operation. But, um, I don't know. Just now, before we sat, sat down to record this, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the news, and, and uh, there's a huge receiving line outside Windsor Castle because there's a, an official period of mourning, which the UK, and particularly England, has entered into. And... Um, Harry, Meghan, Kate, and William all got out of uh, the same limo together, which is significant in and of itself, because ever since Harry kind of ditched his duties and moved to the States, there's been a, quite the rift in the family. 
But, um, you know, the royal watchers are speculating this could bring them back together. There's a, an official 10-day period of, of mourning in the UK, and I think the official state funeral isn't for another 9 or 10 days from when we record this. So, um, it's interesting. But, uh, you know, we'll see how it all shakes out. I, I just... I don't know. I mean, it's it's weird to think that we're getting used to... Uh, we're going to have to get used to, to saying King Charles instead of Queen Elizabeth. Um, but to think about the fact that she just appointed the new Prime Minister of the UK, Liz Truss, literally 42 to 78 hours before she died. Um, and to think back on all the different Prime Ministers that she, in my lifetime, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, David Cameron, Boris Johnson, uh, all of these Churchill. Prime Ministers... Winston Churchill, that's it. To think, she's been on the throne so long that her first appointee was Winston fucking Churchill. She has met every president of the United States except for Lyndon Johnson due to the fact that his, uh, his time in the Oval Office is pretty short because he only finished out Kennedy's term, as far as I know. I think that's correct. Um, she's met every president since Harry S. Truman. So it's to think about somebody being on the throne that long. Obviously, there's going to be ups and downs and ins and outs and mixed feelings about. Uh, nobody's going to be perfect for that long, but right. You know, it, it'll be an interesting world going forward without Queen Elizabeth in it because we've never known a world without her. Fact. Uh, there was one more small thing I wanted to touch on, and you kind of mentioned it uh -huh. earlier. Uh, I, I I I never watched the full special yet because I just can't bring myself to do it. Oh yeah. I yeah, want same. to, but it's very emotional for me. Uh, I was yep. flipping through YouTube, as you do, and uh, I came does. across the video of uh, Shane Hawkins. I want to say he's 16 years old. 16 years old, yeah. The son of late Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins, uh, whose recent death uh, rocked the rock and roll world, really, honestly. Uh, he was Shook the shit out of me. Influential. He's a fantastic drummer, a fantastic guy who... Just like all of us has his own demons, and, and in this particular yeah. case was uh, drugs and alcohol were his demons, and and ultimately uh, I want to say that was what got the better of him. But he was a, a celebrated family man, a wonderful yeah. guy by all accounts, a fantastic musician, and one of, so yeah, they, one of the best drummers in the world. Yeah, energetic, powerful presence. He was just yeah, there. one of the best drummers in the world in a band with another one of the best drummers in the world who's not even playing drums at the time of this writing. So <laughs> Right. And so, I mean, whether you love him or hate him, the Foo Fighters is a very influential band. And I myself am a huge fan. Uh, Same. And, and, and not just of the Foo Fighters, but Dave Grohl as a, as a human being has always been one of yeah. my just uh, standard, you know, if you could meet someone and spend any kind of amount of time with them, who would you pick? And he's always one of you them. Can't, you can't, nobody's ever had a single bad thing to say about Dave Grohl. The man is just, I mean, my except mom Courtney, except loves Courtney Dave love. Grohl. Courtney Love Courtney well, Love, you know. Yeah. Your uh, whatever. whatever. And I guess William Goldsmith, who was the original drummer for the Foo Fighters, who wound up leaving after he found out that uh, Dave recorded all of his parts on, uh, on that <laughs> album. Um, but, you know, Dave has uh, even, he, he even came out on the uh, the soundtrack that they did, a soundtrack, excuse me, on the documentary that they did a couple of years ago. The, the name of it escapes me, but I watched it on uh, online. And he came out and, and apologized. He said, yeah, you know, at the time that was a really, it, it didn't occur to me that doing that would be a bad idea because uh, I just, I had a very concise idea of what I wanted the drums to sound like on that record. And so I did set down and re-record some of that stuff. And I just did it because I, I wanted it to be, what I heard in my head, and I didn't. It literally never occurred to me that I would be shitting on William Goldsmith's contributions to that album by by re-recording some of those parts. But when he found out that I did that, he was justifiably pissed off, and he left. And I don't blame him. I really don't. Um, 
and I apologize, William, if you're watching this. It was a really you know shitty thing to do. It wasn't my intention. Wasn't thinking about it. Should have realized it was going to be painful for and, for, and, and undermining and uh, second guessing for you. But um, I didn't realize it, and I'm sorry. So even right. when he fucks up on the rare occasions that he drops a ball on something or, or somebody's pissed off at him, he he sucks it up and he he's he's a man and he apologizes for things. Uh, and it was heartfelt and and, con, and contrite and genuine. So yeah, so, Dave Grohl. Yeah. I'm not, if if you ever want to really have a good afternoon, fall down a rabbit hole. Just go on YouTube and search like best Dave Grohl moments because the guys had amazing things to say in interviews. Uh, there's a famous clip where he stopped a show because some guy was was beating the shit out of people next to him in the audience, and he's like, oh, "Hey, hey, you, you with the striped shirt, not at my show. You don't come to my show and beat the shit out of people. You come to my show and you fucking dance, motherfucker." Security, right here, pointing at him, guy in the striped shirt right there. Get him the fuck out of my show. Stop mid-song because yeah. somebody was being obnoxious in the audience. I mean, he's just yeah. one of the, the elder statesmen of rock and roll and, a, and a, by all accounts, a great guy. So he didn't yeah. deserve... No, yeah, exactly. But uh, Taylor Hawkins, uh, as, yeah. as he passed, uh, they were having this big memorial uh, for Taylor. Yeah. And it's a very emotional affair, as you might imagine, because, again, Taylor, by all, by all everyone's account, fantastic human being wonderful father yes. wonderful dude fantastically talented musician and so the they did this whole big thing and and i haven't watched the whole thing like i said i can't bring myself to watch it just yet because it's an emotional Tough. thing but i did flip past uh, the video of uh, the foo fighters at this uh at this show performing my hero and to br they br they were bringing on a whole host of guest drummers to fill in the taylor hawkins role during these uh, tributes to Taylor, and in this particular case, they brought up uh, his 16-year-old son Shane Hawkins, and and fresh-faced and young and just full of energy and just and you could see, and, and I think I heard uh, who's the drummer for the Police? Is that Stuart Copeland? Stuart Copeland, yeah, yeah. I saw an interview with Stuart Copeland talking about this afterwards, and he's talking about you know because Stuart Copeland and Taylor Hawkins were friends. They knew each other mm -hmm. really well. And so he was saying, yeah, Shane's got his father's stance. He's got his father's yeah. approach. He hits the drums just like his father. He's got mm -hmm. that passion, that raw aggression. And, you know, if you've ever watched Taylor Hawkins play, then go back and watch this video of them playing uh, My Hero uh, with Shane Hawkins on the kit. I watched that entire video six-minute video with tears streaming down my face yeah and, and i yeah. mean I, I would like to say I'm, I'm not much of an emotional cat but but lately as i get older i found myself much much more emotional um, emotionally forward i guess mm -hmm. and and yeah you know whether that's a detriment or a benefit i don't know some days it hits me some days it doesn't but uh, i'm not quite to the cries at cats and dogs and commercials stage yet but uh uh, I might be hitting menopause. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I watched that entire video with just tears. Tears streaming down my face. Equal parts uh, yeah. uh, tears of, of of sadness and grief. But also tears of just joy. Watching what could potentially be Taylor Hawkins' legacy live on through his son. And it was just... Yeah. You learn, what, you, live, what you more, pass it on. What more can you ask? You, you know, you can't. And to watch that kid play, I had a thought. And I thought, you know, it would be wholly inappropriate for them at, at 16 to take him out on the road to, to occupy his dad's throne uh, just for a lot of reasons. He's not done growing yet. Um, that You know, the road is no place for a kid. 
uh, who can't really make decisions yet. And, uh, you know, he probably needs to finish school and he's, it'd be a complicated thing emotionally for everybody. But, you know, I, I really hope that if they decide they want to take a break and then bring him in when he's 18 or 20 or something, that would be, I think, the most appropriate thing. Because I mean, Who, who better be, to guide it, him than Dave? Right. Clearly, he's got his dad's chops. I mean, yeah. and to have his blood back there would be kind of an amazing uh, way to continue. But, uh, again, it's, 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 it's a horrible thing to, to watch, but it's also an amazing thing to watch because... Um, it was just yeah, beautiful. I see these, these young beautiful. musicians coming up and carrying it on. Because in, in addition to, uh, to to watching Shane Hawkins play, watching Nandi Bichelle uh, play back there, the uh, the little girl mm-hmm. who uh, who's such a tremendous drummer. She's an all around musician, but her primary axe is the, is the drums. And you know, during the pandemic, she was uh, 11, 12 years old and challenged Dave to a drum off. And he, by his own admission, says she thoroughly kicked my ass. She's a powerhouse <laughs> too. So seeing these kids coming up, carrying that torch forward, and you know, as sad as it is to have to do it at a, at a de facto memorial service and in front of 50,000 of your closest friends, uh, these kids, uh, through their grief, they're really writing their own checks for the rest of their lives. They're tremendous Absolutely. kids, um, immensely talented, and, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing them do huge things going forward and, and uh, just bringing, uh, bringing rock and roll into the future. Love it. Love to see and, it. Uh, to a lesser extent, you also have uh, Wolfgang Van Halen uh, passing on yeah. Eddie Van Halen's legacy. Uh, on the guitar as well. Yeah, so. he played bass uh, with with uh, Van Halen for a while, but uh, he played guitar at the Taylor Hawkins show, and clearly the kids got his dad's chops. I mean, yeah, whether that's just growing up in the house, whether it's a nature or nurture thing, whether it's genetic or or just being grown up around guitars and having your dad be Eddie fucking Van Halen. <laughs> uh, I mean, or your dad be Taylor Hawkins. You know, you you've uh, you've got a bit of a head start, sure, but uh, you can't yeah. you can't fake that kind of heart or that kind of uh, that kind of passion. That that comes through a dozen. And people who are music fans like you and I are, who are performers like you and I are, um, you can tell when somebody's just going through the motions. And these kids, they've got it. They got it for sure. As you said, that's not what we, that's not the main thrust of the conversation. And like I said, I I rather enjoyed going through the way we do the podcast now, where we start off with like the first half of the podcast being catch up or news bits or things yeah. like that. But uh, let me know if you guys uh, agree with that or not. I I rather enjoy having the ability to catch up with topical things. But uh, uh, as far as nerd topics go, something that I brought to Jim's attention that I thought was kind of interesting is uh, we've talked a lot about uh, the superhero genre in particular. Uh, whether it be DC Comics or Marvel Comics or what have you, um, the more powerful, and this is kind of what I wanted to touch on with you, the more powerful a character, the more difficult it is to continue writing that character in a realistic and mm-hmm. way. And I think we've had that uh, since the beginning with characters like Superman or even characters like Wolverine or... You know, uh, these all-powerful characters who have to, you have to keep ramping up the stakes in order to make it dramatic. And we've talked about how they're writing their own mythos again, like in the X-Men universe. How all the X-Men are essentially immortal at this point. So it kind of lessens the stakes. It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, just Jubilee died on a mission. Yeah, she'll be back next week. Or, you know, Rogue got shot through the head and she died somehow. Ah, she'll be back next week. Yeah, death is never permanent in comics. 
Right, and I think they're making light of that in the fact that uh, the X-Men have this resurrection protocol on Krakoa now. Uh, be that what, it's may, what it may, if you enjoy that or whatnot, I don't want to pass judgment on you. It's a really interesting topic that we could probably spend an entire conversation talking about. But that really kind of, in my opinion, uh, just long story short of it, lessens the impact of these characters. They don't have... It sure brings the stakes way down, yeah. Right. So uh, if you have a character like... Uh, which is why I think characters like Batman were more relatable because Batman's just a dude with superior fighting skills and superior detective skills and all the money in the world to have gadgets and toys but he's essentially mm -hmm. a regular human when you strip it down to brass tacks he's not kryptonian he doesn't have the you know the laser vision and the cold breath and the super speed and the inhuman strength and the vulnerability and the ability to fly and yada yeah, yada yada special about batman came out of his discipline or his wallet if not a combination of both right and so you have characters like, uh, and we had a kind of a same discussion with uh, with Iron Man and Captain America in that Avengers yeah. movie. Everything special out of you came out of a bottle. Yeah, go get the suit. Big man in a suit of armor. Take that off. What are you? Genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. I know guys with none of that worth ten of you. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play, to lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over you. I think I would just cut the wire. You're a laboratory experiment, Rogers. Everything special about you came out of a bottle. Right. And so, really, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. is Because you have a character like Batman or Iron Man, who's just really just a human, uh, who yeah. take on these uh, superheroic traits. Or you have characters that are nigh-invulnerable machines. Uh, Superman or the Incredible Hulk or any other number of these powerhouses that are created that seemingly have no fault. like These you tanked have... bricks whose eyeballs will stop a bullet. Right, Superman. Uh, right. The thing is, is, is you have a character that's nigh invulnerable, so you have to find ways to get to them. And that's why we end up with things like collateral damage or uh, the women in refrigerators trope, uh, which mm -hmm. started with uh, Green Lantern, if anyone's not aware of that whole trope right. came to light and was named after the fact that the new Green Lantern Kyle Rayner at the time uh, they didn't know how to get to him so they killed his girlfriend and stuffed her mm -hmm. in his refrigerator uh, yeah. as a way to affect him so uh, oh, this she had no character she had no agency she was just cannon fodder for trying to uh, to foster his character development which is right. super shitty and we're going to talk about uh beat to death tropes coming up here soon on the podcast as well uh we've been kicking that one around for a while but uh you also have uh your lois lane or your jimmy olsen in the superman universe spider-man's got his aunt may all of these characters that are put in the path of greater beings to humanize them to give them motivation but I mean, with Superman, like you said, he's got invulnerable skin, he's super strong, he's got yada 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 powers. He's a god. And if you've, yes. if you've watched uh, or read Invincible by Robert Kirkman, uh, I, I highly suggest, I don't want to spoil too much of it, uh, I highly suggest and recommend you go to Amazon Prime, which you know you have it. It's free mm -hmm. if you, you have do. an Amazon membership, and everybody has an Amazon membership. Do it. But Invincible 
tells the story of a Superman-like being with Superman-level powers, Omni-Man, uh, voiced by the incredible J.K. Simmons, who just who's always the best thing about anything he's in. I love that guy. Fair point. But, I even like his fucking insurance commercials. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is uh, it gives us a stark take on a Superman, if you will, a Superman type, a trope that doesn't hold human life in all that high regard. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, we're ants to these people, people, aliens or whatever they are. Uh, in Superman's case, Kryptonian, and in Omni-Man's case, a Viltrumite. But uh, we are ants. We are insignificant. And with mm-hmm. an errant sneeze, they could wipe out a city. And so the trick with these characters is they're so, so overpowered that raising the stakes for them requires earth-shattering things. It's not like, I mean, look at Batman's rogues gallery. Yes, he's got, you know, the Joker, um, who goes through bouts of having powers or not, or uh, whether or not his uh, psychosis is his own power. Uh, But you've got characters like Harley Quinn, who's just super athletic and smart. You've got uh, Mr. Freeze, who is, you know, technology-based, technological. You've got the Riddler, who is no match for Batman physically, but he's incredibly smart and loves putting the Dark Knight detective through his paces in a mental sense. And you've got Catwoman, who, again, no superpowers, but she's trained herself to be incredibly athletic, an Mm -hmm. excellent fighter, um, very stealthy, a cat burglar. And so, yeah, most of uh, the rogues gallery is is, um, also people that have resources or abilities that aren't necessarily supernatural or superhuman in origin, but um, they've trained themselves to be really good at a certain thing. They seek their own level. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with having these these superpowered demigods on the planet is Batman's Royal Gallery is matched up to Batman because it's not... We've seen what happens with uh, Batman stands when uh, uh, Superman and Batman go at it. Oh, Batman could take out Superman with ten minutes of planning, you know? Uh, and, yeah. and yes, it's true in the comics. He's been written that way for years. Always a contingency Thank you, plan. Frank Miller. Mm-hmm. But the reality of the situation is much less Superman, Blue Boy Scout, and much more uh, Viltrumite Omni-Man. If Superman got it in his head that Batman was in the way, Batman would cease to appear, cease to exist from orbit. He would be yeah, done. he would. He yeah. could find him anywhere on the planet and eliminate him. Clark could just grab him under the armpits and, and Bruce could fight back all he wants, but if Clark grabs him under the armpits or grabbed him by the cape and just decided to fly into outer space, just all there is to it. But part of the the weaknesses that, that they have to write into these characters in order to keep the stakes level and in order to keep things on an even keel is that, um, like you said, Superman is a big blue Boy Scout. Um, mm-hmm. He could, if he wanted to, be Omni-Man. If he wasn't raised Easily. with the Midwestern Kansas values that they constantly... If he didn't have reverence and respect for human life, um, he would be Homelander. And that's why they wrote Homelander from the boys the way they did. Yep. Imagine if Superman had no conscience. If he, if he was raised in a test tube in a vacuum and wasn't, uh, didn't, wasn't instilled in him these... Uh, and and uh, Brightburn is another uh, idea of just a, a character that has these, these godlike powers who is super strong, who is indestructible. Uh, you have to uh, write them with a, a Boy Scout mentality, 
or else they're not heroes at all. They're villains. And, and that duality of character is what they've been, they've been playing around with in some of these more recent superhero properties, like Invincible, like The Boys, like Brightburn, like these, uh, these sort of latter-day uh, comics or superhero properties. Um, they got to write that stuff in. Uh, because you're right. I mean, if there's the, these, if they have no physical weaknesses, if if they if they become Homelander and they look at uh, whoever they're with and say, "I can do whatever the fuck I want," because who's going to stop me? They have to write in, if not these weaknesses, at least these vulnerabilities, or else, right. yeah, these characters would very very quickly go off the rails and become the characters that alternative comics and alternative takes on these characters have written the mass. Right, because absolute power does corrupt absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and I like to tell people that. It's like, oh, well, what would you do if you had Jedi powers? It's like, and I'd like to think I'd be altruistic and be, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all lightness and good and I benefit. wouldn't be a Sith at all. No. Uh, I think I'd like to start out that way. But I think by the time uh, it all got said and done and shook out in the wash, I'd be really used to wanting to get my way. And, yeah. You know, we're all like that. And I think that's deep down how intrinsically flawed we all are. If we had the ability to get whatever we wanted and do whatever we wanted, that's the real test. Would we? Yeah. And I think, and I think uh, 99% because, you know, of us would if, fail if that analog, test. Yeah, and people have failed that test. If there's any analog to being, being superhuman in the real world, in the timeline in which we live, it's being a billionaire. If yep. you have enough money, enough resources to do whatever you want, if you you know, if you are Tony Stark or if you are Bruce Wayne, if you are real life versions of these characters, you wind up being Elon Musk. You wind up being Jeff Bezos. You wind up being Richard Branson. Um, and these guys, very seriously, were dinged uh, a couple years ago because the estimation that hey, if you're Elon Musk, if you're Jeff Bezos, if you're if you're uh, Warren Buffett, you could write a check and cure homelessness. Yeah. You could write a check and give every man, woman, and child in this country uh, a basic level of health insurance. You could write a check and fix the water in Flint, fix the water in Jackson, Mississippi. Yep. Every day that you get up and you start pricing support yachts for your support yacht <laughs> and you don't write a check, you're, you're making not, a conscious decision. You're, you're not to be Superman. The you're not Superman. Yeah. You're fucking Lex Luthor. You're, you're sitting on a pile of gold like Smog in the cave and you're, you're, you're not act, you're, you're making the decision to actively not help out and that's the thing i mean the selfishness the single personal selfishness overnight any one of these guys could decide that they want to be a hero they could decide they want to change the entire narrative about billionaires in this country um and okay to be fair some of them have Uh, actually just as a good example of a billionaire uh mark cuban the owner of the dallas mavericks he lives in uh texas and he has used his money to do something good. He owns a, an online pharmacy called Cost Plus Drugs, where he buys drugs at um, very low prices and sells them at cost to people. You can get your online prescription filled at Cost Plus Drugs, and you're saving tons and tons of money over what your pharmacy might charge you. Um, so he's doing something great. And people don't say anything bad about Mark Cuban. But if you're Elon Musk, if you're Jeff Bezos, you could literally... Jeff Bezos' ex-wife... Uh, is also doing the same thing. Uh, Mackenzie Scott, she is, uh, uh, she inherited quite a large sum of money from her uh, mm-hmm. split with Jeff divorce. Bezos, and uh, she's been putting her money where her mouth is, literally. Yeah, and doing a lot of good work but with that money. You don't hear anything bad about these people, or like Warren Buffett, who's who signed the same pledge Bill Gates did to give away so much of his money by the time that he, you know, because you can't take it with you. Um, 
And the fact of the matter is these people have such absurd amounts of money that they could give away the majority of it. They'll never be able to spend all of it. They really are smug in the cave sitting on the pile of gold. You, you can't spend all of that money. So you could be a hero, a superhero, tomorrow if you woke up and just said, you know what, I'm fixing the water in, in, in Flint. I'm fixing the water in Jackson. I'm going to, to house every homeless Think of all the jobs country. that would create. Create no a, co- a shit. company to create, but what do they do? Fix, yeah. They buy yeah, support like, yachts for the support yacht, and they build dick-shaped rockets to fuck outer space. They, they don't, they don't do the right thing, and they are the people who could do it. They are the superheroes. If there are equivalents of superheroes in society, they could do it, but they don't. So the supervillains. Now, am I saying that we need to forcibly take their money away? Yes. No, but no. <laughs> well, I mean. Through taxes. We should do it in a way that makes sense. I'm not saying we need to hold them at gunpoint and say you need to surrender X amount of your money to be able to help other people. But they should want to do it. And and if they don't want to do it, we have to make them... They have to be, to be made to do it through taxes. I'm not a huge fan of punishing success. I'm not a huge fan of, of trying to say, you know, that you... But if you're a... Okay, if you, you can be a millionaire based on hard work and sweat equity. You can. There are plenty of self-made millionaires in this country. But to be a billionaire... Nobody earns that much money unless it's off the sweat in the backs of other people. To be a billionaire in this country requires exploitation. And that's not an opinion. That's just if you look at how these people made their, their, their fortunes. It's through exploiting other people. Whether you're the Waltons, who you, uh, pay people minimum wage to run all their stores and then take all the money. Or whether it's Jeff Bezos, uh, who won't let Amazon employees piss as long as they're on the clock and they got to pee in Gatorade bottles that had Gatorade in them an hour ago. Um, yeah. You could, if you wanted to, wake up tomorrow and make the choice to be a fucking superhero. And every day you don't, like you said, you're Lex fucking Luthor. Now we tangented off here a little bit, like we do, but uh, the yeah. idea the, the idea is with these superheroes, like Superman, his, one of his greatest enemies is his Lex Luthor. Because, yeah. like we're talking about, and this is how it ties in, trust me, there was a tangent here, but uh, Lex Luthor is the antithesis of everything that Superman is. Superman is is generous and self-effacing and heroic and and respectful respectful and and a superhero whereas lex luthor is greedy and cunning and conniving and and jeff bezos basically power hungry right and jealous of superman's ability uh and and that's always been a driving motivation but you have to have these characters that are equally fucked up as as equally fucked up as a superhuman is pure so you got to have virtuous the yeah. flip side i mean and that's why we have the joker and batman that's why we have superman and lex luthor on and, on and that's and why on. we have two face all self-contained in one body right but the idea is you know you have to keep raising the stakes for these superheroes because you can't just have them fight lex luthor all the time so, who are you going to have him fight? Well, if he was fighting Batman's rogues gallery, it'd be over in 10 seconds. They'd be in jail. Let's face it. Batman's rogues gallery wouldn't stand a chance next to Superman, with the notable exceptions of, like, Poison Ivy or magic pe- magic users who have an effect on Superman. Or That's Bane, a, who pumps himself up to be superhumanly strong. Right. The weaknesses are built in, but... They could maybe hold their own for a minute or two. Right, uh, but at likewise, you have the supervillains that Superman faces, I don't think, are a good match for Batman. Uh, you're not going to see Batman going up against world conquerors like Mongol or Darkseid or what would Batman do against Doomsday? 
absolutely nothing. We nope. saw when Doomsday first came to plant to the planet in uh, Death of Superman lead up. He landed and he just marching his way to to Metropolis to take on Superman because he could sense Kryptonian DNA. That was what he was there to eliminate. Uh, because backstory was created later, he was created by Kryptonians to be the ultimate perfect killing weapon, and so he was. But uh, all of the superheroes, the Justice League, the Justice Society, all of these superheroes went up against Doomsday as he was stomping his way towards Metropolis and got summarily eliminated, yeah. destroyed. They didn't Mowed stand down. a freaking chance against Doomsday because Doomsday wasn't created to stop them. They are not in the same ballpark, in the same league. They, he's a Superman killer, and that's what he was there to do, and that's what he did. But the idea is... Like if, if humans are ants to superheroes, you got to create a, a villain that is uh, to, to whom a superhero was an ant. Right. Someone without that moral complication or the rational thought, even, or <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. But that's that's where I think the weakness is in these superheroes. you got these superheroes that are so overpowered and so... Um, I, I mean, I guess overpowered is just the way to say it. The absurd uh, lengths you have to go through to come up with an adversary for them that's going to be any match for them at all. Right. I mean, and, and like with Wolverine. Wolverine is uh, ostensibly immortal. You can't mm -hmm. kill him. He can re regenerate from... A drop of blood. A speck a, of a blood. A piece of hair. You know, yeah. Uh, somehow, some They've even way, tried to burn him, thing. and he goes back up out of the ashes like a phoenix. Right. Somehow, some way, unless you eliminate his mutant power, which is his healing factor... You can't kill him. Same with Wade nope. Wilson. Same kind of thing. But that just makes the stakes that much harder. You have to find someone who's that much more aggressive, and the power struggle that happens between them is just that much more intense because you've created these beings that are so powerful. And, 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 and I don't know, maybe this is just something that's going on in my head, but I just kind of feel like... Uh, you you write yourself into a corner with these characters, and they've had to do it a lot a with bit, Superman yeah. recently. Where yep. they've they, uh, even during the New Fifty Two, they've given him new power, which was his solar flare ability. Different colors of kryptonite. Mm -hmm. Oh, that that's been going on forever. And uh, yeah, so you mentioned kryptonite, and that's actually a really good point. And so, like all the different forms of kryptonite were created to have an effect on an otherwise immortal, unkillable, unstoppable, powerful. God. Uh, we, of course, have green kryptonite, which is the main kryptonite in comic continuity. Theoretically uh, could kill him if he's exposed to it hard and long enough. Yeah, it just it weakens him severely and can kill them when exposed for length, any decent length of time. And we've seen it used as daggers and swords and things like that. And it can cut and it can, uh, used properly, kill Superman. Uh, red kryptonite severely weakens kryptonians, more so than the traditional green... But it has also been known to cause bizarre mood swings and even mutations. So that's interesting. There's an anti-kryptonite, uh, or what they sometimes call reverse kryptonite, has no effect on Kryptonians, but is extremely lethal for humans. So it's a poison rock, I guess. Uh, X-kryptonite, which they've talked about in the comics and has been a kind of a thing in uh, uh, the Superman and Lois show, uh, gives humans and other creatures superhuman powers. So if anyone knows where to find some, send it to me here at the Feel Your Fan Podcast. I'm, I'm willing to mm -hmm. uh, partake. Uh, we got blue kryptonite. 
Commonly, it is used to stop Bizarro, uh, Superman's uh, reverse nemesis, and uh, it affects Bizarro pretty much the same way Green Kryptonite affects Superman. It doesn't exactly say what it does to actual Superman, but White Kryptonite, which basically just looks like quartz, um, it kills all the plant life. Hmm. I'm learning some of these as we go. Gold Kryptonite. Um, gold Kryptonite removes superpowers permanently. So stay the hell away from that. Silver Kryptonite gives Superman some pretty trippy hallucinations. Far out, man! Um, yeah, outer space drugs. Yeah, space drugs, yeah. The comment on this is, did Superman ever actually have a crossover with Cheech and Chong? We pay to see it. Yo. Black Kryptonite, or what looks like charcoal, uh, splits a Kryptonian into two entities, good and evil. So, we've seen that a couple times. Uh, orange Kryptonite. Uh, orange Kryptonite gives animals superpowers in the form of Crypto or... Uh, whatever the horse's name was, or what was it, Blippy the Chimp, the Super Chimp? I don't remember. I never go. You know, I didn't see the uh, <clears throat> the Super Pets movie, and I probably won't. But uh, yeah, that's that's. This is what we're talking about. You gotta kind of split hairs and get further and further down. I come up with more and more far fetched, even for fantasy and superhero properties, ideas to kind of keep things interesting and and the plot lines moving along. Well, you want to talk interesting? How about Pink Kryptonite? Any guess on what Pink Kryptonite does? Um, I, don't I bet know, you'll be wrong. Hungry. I bet you'll be wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to read this verbatim from the Nerdist article I'm reading it from. It says, Pink Kryptonite. How do we put this? It sounds like a joke, but in all seriousness, whenever Superman comes into contact with Pink Kryptonite, he uh, plays for the other team. Pink Kryptonite turns Superman gay. You want to talk a problematic storyline nowadays? I don't think they should fuck with you that. You know, I was going to say that. That was going to be my guess. What is it? Does it um does it does it make Superman bat for the other team for a minute? But I would have thought, nah. Th there's no there's way no they way do they, that. This that that would be horrible. And, and that would be completely uh, stereotypical and very sort of hateful. There's no way they would make it that. Yep. That was actually the first thing that sprung to mind when I was thinking, ah, there's not a chance in hell that would be the case because how shitty would that be? But oh well. Supergirl volume 4 number 79. Uh, purple kryptonite, or periwinkle kryptonite. Uh, periwinkle kryptonite causes Superman to lose all of his inhibitions. He gets him drunk. Fantastic. So, I mean, those are just some of the ways that they've had to develop to, uh, not cripple Superman, except in the case of gold kryptonite or green kryptonite, but, but definitely to, to hamper him. To give him, uh, a regular kind of, I guess disability if you want to call it that they've had to find a way to i don't want to say castrate him or neuter him or you know but it's kind of equivalent to that they need to find a way to take that invulnerability away even in the temporary or cause enough upset to his character i.e make him a villain to well they say you can't know good if you don't know evil is that the case in this particular place where we we don't know how good Superman can be until we know how bad Superman can be? I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, it just seems to me as though uh, if you're going to create this character that is ostensibly unstoppable, you then have to kind of work backwards from that. You have to think, well, there's no way, because the, the entire essence of drama comes from conflict, um, comes from, from danger. 
I mean, obviously, uh, if you've got a character who's a long-running character, who's a main character on the show, like, if you are like, um, uh, Scotty, Bones, Kirk, and Ensign Redshirt go down to the surface, uh, you know who's not coming back. Um, it's called so, script immunity, and these, and these yeah, characters in large part have them. Yeah. They have script immunity and plot armor, so you have to kind of come up with ways that you can, um, realistically and and uh, believably, plausibly endanger them, because everybody knows that, I mean, that's why the Death of the Superman uh, series is so shocking. Because, because they because killed him, people, even if it was just for since a little the 40s, while. Since, since uh, Siegel came up with it to begin with, uh, he's, uh, Superman is invincible. Uh, there's no way to, to put him in a corner that he can't get his way out of. There's no way to endanger him in any meaningful way. So we kind of have to figure out ways that we can threaten him, that we can make it seem as though things are going to go real south for him and, and, and put him in a, a position where he's got to kind of get his way out. Otherwise, the entire essence of drama is conflict and nobody's going to pay attention to whatever we're doing uh, unless we can come up with some way to keep it interesting. And so we have to have to find sort of gaps in their armor a little bit to make it uh, seem as though we're putting them in danger before we kind of do the narrative device thing of pulling them out at the last second. Right, and script armor is a thing we've talked about before, and we could totally talk about that before, script immunity, plot armor. Uh, we see that a lot in shows like, uh, we just had the new Obi-Wan show released recently, which was fantastic, and it put Obi-Wan in some real very mortal danger. And, and you watch this show, and you see him uh, going up against Darth Vader, and having this tense standoff where he's getting his literal ass handed to him. Yep. And in the back of your head, you're going, well, I mean, I know he lives. Yeah. You know? He's not in any real danger until he goes oh, to the, uh, the death of Leia, Star Destroyer. Right. Princess Leia was kidnapped. Well, you know she lives. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's a certain point. Like, that's what I think is so exciting about shows like The Mandalorian where they're exploring other characters like Mando or Grogu or or things like that, because we have these characters that do not have, for all intents and purposes, an established future in those properties. We don't know where Grogu goes. We don't know where Mando's at when it comes to, uh, like, let's, let's even say into the Last Jedi territory or Rise of Skywalker or all that. We don't know where these characters are, what they've done, where they've been. It's completely open territory. They don't have that script immunity. We know yeah. that uh, General... Organa lives up until a certain point. We can write in stuff that's in between. We can give some serious dramatic stakes, but we can't kill her. So that's off the table. That's kind of the same thing that I'm thinking about with like Superman. And that's why the death of Superman was so impressive and why I keep referencing Doomsday is because that's something that turned that on its ear. Even if they knew in the back of their heads that they're going to bring Superman back down the road, they killed him. And he was gone yeah. for well over, I want to say it was like a year, year and a half. He was replaced by, you know, Steel and Superboy yep. and the Eradicator and Cyborg. Cyborg Superman, excuse me. There's a difference between Cyborg and Cyborg Superman. But the idea was that for all intents and purposes, he was dead. They did that with Batman for a while. They took Batman off the board, replaced him after his death with Dick Grayson. They had mm -hmm. what they called the battle for the cowl and all that, and so who would take up the mantle? And it was Dick Grayson that took up the mantle, which it seems like it should have been if anyone was going to. And yeah. he took on Damian Wayne, uh, Bruce's son, as Robin. And, of course, we all know that Bruce Wayne came back. Whatever plot contrivances are arrived to bring any of these heroes back, they're not the X-Men. They don't just come right back now. But 
be that as it may, we see life go on. But we don't usually have those stakes for these characters, which is why I think those stories stand out so much. They've got this plot armor that you can't get through. So how do you how do you affect any kind of massive change on a scale that's going to affect these gods? Superman. You have to go to great effects like to alter his DNA or send mm-hmm. an unstoppable killing machine, an implacable foe. Now, they did that with Doomsday. And he finally eventually defeated Doomsday. But Doomsday came back. Doomsday came back stronger than ever. And so they had to keep upping the game and upping the game and upping the game. And in fact, like I said, they talked about uh, in New 52, uh, when they rebooted the entire DC Universe again, mm-hmm. they brought in a new power for him, uh, the Solar Flare. And what that enables him to do is expend all of the solar energy. Everyone knows Superman gets his power from, the, from our yellow sun. Yep. He absorbs that energy, and, and that's what powers him. He's able to expend all of this energy in one humongous, I would have to imagine, super dangerous burst of energy. Which eliminates, it's like a plot, uh, a deus ex machina kind of plot device where it, it yeah. just kind of eliminates whatever threat is present at the time, you hope. Because the end result is Superman's without power for a while. He's a normal human after that. Or he's Kryptonian, but normally human. He's at human levels of, of ability at that point. He essentially out-supermans himself and becomes Clark Kent. So you have to go to these super, super, just far out lengths to humanize these characters to bring them back to our level because they're so overpowered that we don't relate to them. You know what I mean? And that's why I think characters like um, Homelander or uh, the Viltrumites, in specific uh, Omni-Man or... Mm -hmm. Uh, Mark Wade has a series of comics that he wrote, uh, two series in fact, that kind of follow the same uh, kind of pattern, which I really love. That's in that same uh, Omni-Man kind of, you know, Homelander kind of vein where you take it and flip it, right? And so we have a character uh, in a book called uh, Incorruptible, uh, which follows a character, uh, Max Damage, which is a supervillain. That's a that's a super villain. That's a super villain porn name if I've ever heard one. For sure. Uh, my name is Max Damage. I mean, it's super cheesy, but the fact is, he's a uh, a super villain who's trying to reform, trying to become a better person. Become a hero, ostensibly. Which is a spin-off of another uh, uh, Mark Wade series called Irredeemable. And Irredeemable follows a character called the Plutonian. Obviously a, a, a play on Kryptonian. Uh, who's essentially got the same power set as Superman. Um, who turns on the world. He's the greatest hero the world has ever known. Until he decides he doesn't want to be. And then he becomes the greatest threat. And then he becomes the greatest threat that the world has ever known. And what that kind of world would look like. And so I like it when they have to subvert something like that to show us the flip side of what Superman could be in the wrong hands. What Batman could be in the wrong hands. What's an evil, yeah. what's an evil Wolverine look like? What's, uh, you know, 
that's why I think a character like Deadpool is really fascinating because you get to see someone with this great amount of power and in a complete irreverence. Uh, yeah. A complete disregard for pretty much anything, but we get to see this 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 anti-hero. I'm on my own side and I do things and if they're good then great. I, I want to be you know, uh, somebody who does uh, the right thing and who's ostensibly a hero, but at the end of the day, I'm going to do whatever's right for me, and if it just so happens to work out for other people, then so much the better. Like Homelander. Homelander yeah. presented himself as the world's premier, utmost superhero, because that's what he is sold at. That is the bill of goods that he was sold. That's the bill of goods that we as, uh, we in the collective term, uh, bought into with Vought, and yeah. Uh, if you've watched The Boys, you know, holy shit, that is not the case. And if you haven't seen The Boys, then um, it's interesting because he, to a certain degree for the first two seasons, kind of has to keep up appearances. He's an absolute irredeemable, oh my god, I can't believe he just did that bastard when nobody's mm-hmm. looking. But because he is still the, the kind of uh, Superman of this particular universe... Uh, he has looked up to, he's out there doing PR and smiling, no, you're the real heroes, and putting on this false veneer of her, of, of, of being a hero, and, and then he just does whatever the fuck he wants behind the scenes. But then, killing, the raping, season, pillaging, you know. Uh-huh. Things tend to go, uh, they swing a little bit further to the other direction, because he has a few moments where he slips up, and uh, the, the mask slips a little bit, uh, and he's he, the, the public sort of sees him a little bit for who he really is. And that's when The Boys starts to slip into its most subversive social commentary because it asks the question, gosh, this, um, this blonde-haired, uh, all-powerful leader type uh, is, is shown to be an absolute bastard, but there are still people who are going to worship him and be in his cult anyway. Wonder who else that, 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 that uh, describes who's, uh, who's in society. And so when a <laughs> uh, movement in, in, in the, the universe springs up that's like, hey, the worse he is, the more certain people like him, it really starts to kind of drive home what, what they're really talking about. Um, but it's interesting to watch. It's interesting to watch the scales kind of fall from Homelander's eyes as he realizes, I've been towing the line and being a Boy Scout in, in front of the public for a long time, but... The, I don't the, want to do it anymore. Yeah, I don't want to do it anymore. And I'm not going to do it anymore. And there are certain people who are going to love me for that. For just, I can do whatever the fuck I want, and then I do, and then I don't really lose anybody. I, I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose any voters. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a pretty clear, uh, very thinly veiled analogy to whom they're really speaking about. But um, it's still interesting to watch it play out because you would think to yourself, you look at that and you go, huh, if he lasered somebody in half in a crowd just for being there to protest him, who would still be on his side in that moment? Uh, and, and boy, what would that look like in a real world setting? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a pretty obvious um, analog. It's a... As an allegory, a Ramana Clay, if you will. And I will, motherfucker. I took literature. Um, <laughs> so it just gets real interesting to kind of watch not just how the writers and creators of these characters come up with ways to sort of uh, humanize or, or exploit the vulnerabilities of these characters, but, but what it means in a larger societal, sociopolitical context. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, that's kind of why I like these stories. I mean... That's kind of what I get out of these stories because otherwise I just get bored with them. I think, and that's and, and that you got to really look for the social implications in these stories because, you know, an all-powerful big blue boy scout doesn't appeal to me. You know, I want someone with weaknesses and and foibles and fables, and I want something that's going to have stakes. And you know, I, I say that, but I'm a comic fan. 
and there's enough plot armor in comics to throw me off of that statement already, but I like to have a bit more vulnerability in my heroes. Uh, yeah. I also think any superhero, depending on the era during which they were created, kind of, to some degree, reflects the Moria of the times. Uh, in the 40s, we had Superman. He was conceived of as this very all-powerful, godlike ubermensch of a character, because at the time, um, it was, uh, you know, post, uh, we were in the middle of the war, in World War II, it was kind of post-depression. Uh, as a society, Western culture was feeling pretty down, and so we had to create this aspirational character who was powerful, because we as a society were, were weakened through war and economic failure. Um, but then the 60s came around, and we had kind of the the uh, the next wave of heroes come up. I don't know. I'm not on my comics ages, but there's you know gold and silver, bronze ages. This different era of heroes, and we had heroes like the X Men and Spider Man that were created. And the X Men, uh, Stan Lee came out uh, in many different times and said the X Men were created as an analog to combat racism, which during the civil rights era was kind of a big fucking deal. I mean, obviously it still is, but at the time it was a very socially oh, I can't even say at the time it's always been a very socially concerning problem but you know at the, at the, the beginning of like when you're dealing with Malcolm X and Medgar Evers and Dr. King getting killed and all of this um, to, to create a, a, a race essentially of heroes that are hey they're they're not worse than you they're just different and you need to kind of respect that or to create a hero like Spider-Man who was not vulnerable. If he gets the shit kicked out of him in a, uh, a fight, he's going to be cut, bleeding, and bruised. He doesn't have bulletproof skin. He's got excellent reflexes, the proportionate strength of a spider. Obviously, he can climb walls and the webs and all that. He's got a, a set of powers, but he was made to be a high schooler with a family who was a superhero out there as your, yeah, yeah. As your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, doing what he could to help his neighborhood and to, to kind of make the world a better place, brighten his corner. But... He still had very human problems. He had to go to school. I mean, he's he's, he's punching out the lizard on a rooftop, and then he's got to be uh, late for algebra. And uh, if anybody, God, should find out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, they come after Aunt May. Aunt May is his kryptonite. Aunt May is his weak spot. Yep. And so, yeah, as, as the idea of the superhero has grown and progressed in entertainment, whether it's on the page or the screen or what have you, video games even, um, the idea of trying to not weaken them, but to humanize them, to make them vulnerable in ways that are relatable, so that you cheer for them, so that you can relate to them, project yourselves onto them, and think to yourself, if I were in the position where I could punch trucks into outer space, or if I was in a position where I could swing through Manhattan and climb walls, and what well, I would hope that I would do the same things that this hero would do. I, I like to think that I'm that person inside, and and uh, but seeing them have to deal with some of the same things that I do further allows me to project and to relate and, and uh, it's just a kind of a good thing for the narrative all the way around about how you look at it. Right, and so, I mean, this conversation is a little weird because, I mean, it's kind of meandering like we do, but uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I just kind of, I, I kind of had this in my head going on all week and I just wanted to talk about, you know, how we, how do you affect change on a hero that is essentially a god? you got to raise the stakes and it's like, and that's why we see things in like Thor Love and Thunder, which is now available on Disney+. Plus. If you haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. Um, yep. But you have to have someone like your Gore the God Butcher. Someone who can uh, be a weakness for the God. And that's why you have uh, his villains being on par with him. Loki or Malekith or people like that. People, I say people, but you know what I mean. Uh, characters like that. Aliens, Asgardians, interdimensional beings. Etc. and what have you. But uh, you have to raise the stakes. 
And and I feel like it's a, it's a war of attrition because once you've raised the stakes like they did with Doomsday, you got to raise it again. You got to raise it again. So now Doomsday is even more powerful, or the next guy is even more powerful. And it's like you have to keep raising them both up until you just have to stop, like DC does all the time. Reset, wipe it all back to stage one, and start again. I mean, there's just it seems like there's a lot of work in creating someone that more, much more powerful to storytell with them. And, and uh, I don't know that it's it's necessarily like that with other characters. Like uh, Punisher, you had to uh, create an entire new backstory to kind of get him away from his gun-toting days. And uh, Spider-Man, I think one of the more intriguing stories that they came up with him recently uh, was the Superior Spider-Man storyline where they swapped minds with uh, uh, Dr. Octopus. Otto Octavius was in the mind of, of Spider-Man for, like I want to say it was over a year where Peter Parker was ostensibly dead. Uh, they switched bodies, and Doc Ock's body died. And so the only Spider-Man we had at that point was Otto Octavius in the body of Peter Parker, doing Peter Parker things, but doing them the superior way kind of thing. So, I mean, that's a kind of intriguing storyline. Uh, but, I don't know. Tell me what you guys think. I'd like to hear your take on uh, power versus... Uh, weaknesses versus strengths and I mean tell me what you feel about like who's your favorite superhero and uh, what have they what lengths have they gone to to uh, stop this superhero what, what have they had to do to ground this character in I don't want to say reality reality is ridiculous and subjective but <laughs> uh, what have they had to do to uh, make this character appealing and relatable to you. Uh, reach out and touch us. Let us know what you think. We, we really like it when you reach out and touch us. Hello. Yeah. Hit us up on the good old Facebooks. Facebook.com forward slash feel your fandom. Uh, send us an email. You know you want to. Feel your fandom at gmail.com. Backup email at fyftalibooking at gmail.com. Instagram at, at fuel your fandom. Twitter at, at fuel underscore your. And you can always hit us up at the Fuel the Future Kids program that helps us get comics into the hands of underprivileged kids at Venmo, Cash App, and PayPal at, at Fuel Your Fandom. And however you get us into your moist, tight, tender little ear holes, whether it's Audible, whether it's Spotify, whether it's iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you buy and sell and trade fine podcasts, we are happy that you do. Absolutely. Now, last week was a ton of fun. I really enjoyed having our... Uh, if you guys haven't listened to it, I highly recommend going back and listening to that uh, our episode with the super awesome pinball show. Uh, Even were, if you're not interested in pinball, you will be by the time you get finished doing that. I know I was. Fantastic guests, fantastic people. And just, I'm having a ball doing these podcasts. And it's like I said, I enjoy talking to you, Jim, but sometimes when we get to branch out and talk to the people who listen or, or other people that, that we can get involved, it's 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 just that much more of an experience for me. So for let sure. us let us know who you want us to talk to. If you've got ideas for guests, if you want to be a guest, let us know. Tell us what you want to talk about. Hit us up. And some of you have reached out and let us know you want to be guests. And we have not forgotten about you. We're just trying nope. to figure out between uh, the two of us what our schedules look like and how we can figure it out. Because uh, when you're only talking about getting two people together, uh, sort of catch as catch can. We have regular recording times. But other times, life gets in the way. We kind of kind of jump in and do things where and when we can. But if you've reached out to us and want to be a guest, you will be a guest. We have not forgotten about you. We just need to uh, kind of get our poop in a group a little bit and figure out when that's going to be a good time. Absolutely that. But from Jim and I, uh, we want to thank you again for listening to another 
episode of the Future Fandom Podcast. And do remember, everything is fandom, and fandom is everything. Take care, you guys.